Um, if you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 16. Uh, very shortly, we will be reading verses 4 through 15. Jesus has left his church with a quite daunting task. That task is that we are sent out in the world to speak about the glory and the goodness of Christ. And if that was the entirety of the task that he had left to us, then that might be simple enough. We could do that. But we are also expecting that many of those people that we go and speak to, many of those people that we talk to, that we provide the good news to, would be persuaded by that very good news. And the Bible clearly indicates what a task this is. For those very people that we are winning to the gospel are the very people that the gospel says need to be saved because they hate God. They are at enmity with God. They might think that they are friends with a form of God, but the true and living God they do not like. They cannot stand him, and they would gladly welcome an eternity without him. How do you convince people like that? How do we convince people to the truthfulness of Scripture, to the truthfulness of the gospel? One of the most poignant times in my life that really drove this home was when I was a, a younger man, an intern at a refinery, and I was working alongside, I had a couple of supervisors. My most immediate supervisor was a woman named Wendy, and Wendy was a nominal Christian. She, she believed that you know, you could have your truth and someone else could have their truth. And, and truth was really without a more. It's not just that truth can change its form in different cultures, but really, you know, Muslims might have as much claim to truth as Christians. And she might be a Christian and she might claim to be a Christian simply because she grew up in wherever she grew up in USA. And I, as a young man who loved philosophy and apologetics, sat down with her one afternoon and we began to talk and and I began to get more fired up and I began to talk to her about how irrational this is. And as an engineer, she should have known better. She's a very bright woman, had a master's degree in engineering. And by the end of that conversation, I got her to admit that given all of her presuppositions, two plus two could equal five. Believe it or not, she was not one to the Lord that day by my brilliance or my wisdom. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that she even admitted that simply so that I would leave and she could go get dinner or something like that. She, she probably just caved out of sheer pressure and relief. Uh, we are faced with a daunting task. How, how do we make people buy into what we're selling? How, how do we get people who are not prone or desiring the gospel to love the gospel? How do we get people who hate God to love God? The short answer that we are given is we don't. That is the work of the Spirit. And so as we read today, Jesus outlines exactly how the Spirit will do this, in general terms, but nevertheless. Begin reading with me in verse 4. I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, 
because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of our God. In our passage today, Jesus says some very difficult things, so let us kind of work through them one at a time. The first is this absolutely crazy statement. I think that these things, his going away, is to their advantage. And he says, none of you ask me where I'm going. Certainly the disciples have at least hinted at that back in 14.5. And in 13.36, Peter flat out asks him that. I think that the point is now you're not asking me because it doesn't matter so much to you because sorrow has filled their heart. They don't care so much where Jesus is going, but they do care an awful lot that he is going. What a turnaround this must have been for them. Three years they have followed him. They had known and thought and trusted that this man was the Messiah. They saw him do miracles that attested to the fact that he was the Messiah. They thought for sure that soon he would be heralded as king, that he would indeed fight for his people, that he would restore the kingdom to Israel, that peace, joy, and comfort would once again be the lot for the people of Israel, that Gentile intrusion and oppression would be removed. He would reign over his people, and the disciples themselves would be an integral part of his reign. They would be his close compadres through all of this. And realize that what Jesus has just got done telling them, he is going to his death. His status as king, or at least the kind of king that he must be, is so uncertain as to be totally questioned in the minds of the disciples at this point. He lays down his life without a fight, or at the very best, he fights and loses. The kingdom, far from being restored, seems to fight against him as the leaders of Jerusalem turn against him. The Gentiles and their rule does not seem to be displaced. And the disciples, far from being court attendees and honored in the kingdom, are told that they're going to be hated by the world, that they're going to be rejected by their people, and what's more, they might even face death. And Jesus looks at him and he says, all this is for your good. The worst part of this, perhaps, is the fact that Jesus says that he is going to go away, and yet he still insists that this is for their good. We have trouble with this as well. We have trouble realizing why this is for our good. After all, if Jesus were here with us, wouldn't that be better? If he were here speaking to you instead of me, that would indeed be better. If he were here along with us, worshiping God and praising God, leading us and instructing us in wisdom and in truth, that would be better. So why does he say that it would be better if he goes away and sends the Spirit to us? Part of the problem is that we, again, are just individual. When we think this is better for you, the thing that kind of hits us is that for me individually, having Jesus with me would be better. But friends, if Jesus were with us or if Jesus were with you, then he wouldn't be elsewhere. This is the nature of what Jesus has taken on as the second person of the Trinity has incarnated himself. He has taken on a nature that limits where Jesus can be. Jesus cannot be human and Jesus everywhere all the time. 
So he was in Galilee, he was not in Jerusalem. And if he's in Bay City, then he's not in Kazakhstan. And if he's there, he's not in Romania, or in Tokyo, or in Brazil, or with us. Jesus convicted people of the same things that the Spirit was going to convict people of. But indeed, if he were with us, he couldn't do it on a worldwide scale. And so Jesus says, I will send you one who can do that on a worldwide scale. As God with you, but not in the flesh. So that omnipresence is not something that the, the Holy Spirit is limited by because he has not taken on humanity. And so it is indeed with us. And in time they will understand the nature of his work and his mission. It is for our good. So long as we are not so self-centered to think that everything is about us or the advantages that we could have, to see the advantage of the kingdom of God, to have the Spirit sent to us, that he might convict people everywhere in the world under the word of God at the same time is an amazing advantage to the church of God and the mission that Christ has left her. So long as we only consider ourselves, it is not to our advantage but when we long for others to know Jesus, when we long for others to hear the word, when we long for Jesus to be rightly praised by the nations of the world, when we rightly long for Jesus to receive the inheritance of those nations, when we long for the people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language to hear and believe and trust in the good news of Jesus Christ, it is indeed to our advantage. And so he says, I am going to send you the Spirit. And when he comes, he says he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This particular phrase, almost above any in John, is scrutinized because it is incredibly terse and compact. And a lot of these terms, especially that middle one, righteousness, is filled with meaning that is hard to understand precisely what Jesus said here. And therefore, we have to be very cautious with telling others what these things must mean. And we've got to be pretty kind when others say that they, they mean this, actually, not what you said, but this. So we're going to be kind of gentle as we go through here. But nevertheless, I do think that these say something specific to us. And so we'll go through each of these in turn. We're going to first not start with the three we're going to start with that word convict. When he comes, he will convict. This is the work of the Spirit to convict. Now that word has many meanings, and it can make different meanings. In English, it can also have the, word, the meaning of condemn. To be a convict is someone who was convicted and sentenced and guilty. And the question because becomes, is that what the, the Spirit is here working to do? When he says he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, that kind of, in a sense, accords with what John says about the world. The world is the world, and it's not Jesus because the world is bad and evil and wrong and filled with darkness, and Jesus is good and light, and not from the world, but ultimately from God. But there is a problem with this, and that is that the Spirit is as John has already said back in chapter 14, another helper. He is in line with Jesus and extending the very mission of Jesus. Jesus did not come, as he said several times, to condemn but to save. And so it seems like the work of the Holy Spirit in being a helper would also be one who helps by bringing people to repentance. And so it doesn't seem like his job would be to condemn people. After all, even in this, he is still called the helper. The term can also mean something like expose. 
bring to light. It, it's the same word that's used back in John 3.20, where at the end of that passage with John 3.16, talking about how the Son was sent into the world, John 3.20 says this, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They, they are shown. And the question becomes, if the Holy Spirit's work here is to show or to expose, what does that even mean? Who's he exposing it to? Is the world work being the works of the world being shown or exposed to the nations as a whole? Is it being shown to the disciples? Is it being shown to themselves so they can see it? It's not at all clear. I'm not totally against that, but it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I think that a better use of this is something like Revelation 3.19, again written by the Apostle John, where Jesus says this, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That word there, reprove, is the same word here. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I think that what the Holy Spirit is here to do is to rebuke. It is a reproving. It is convicting them and leading them to repentance so that they might know God. And he does this three ways. First, by convicting about sin. Jesus says in verse 9 that he not only convicts about sin, but he does so because they do not believe in me. Why this? Why not say, because they are all sinners? They convict of sin because they sin. He makes the mention here of the fact that they don't believe in me because that is actually the crux of everything. It's not that they don't believe that they're sinners. It's not even that he's going to convict them of sin. But the one sin that matters more than anything else is the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ because that is the crux on which everything hangs. If you don't believe in Christ, then all of your sin hangs on you and there is nothing in the world that can ever take it away or remove it from you. There is no remedy for the problems that you will face. No amount of good works, no amount of charity, no amount of recitation of the truth, as we sing, can ever get you remedied from your sin, can ever bring you back and reconcile you to God. And so because of that, the only, the only escape is to believe in Jesus Christ. And then once you believe in Christ and truly trust yourself and trust yourself to him, there is no need to worry about sin anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't repent, but it does mean that your sin is taken care of. Once you believe, you are washed. Once you believe, you are cleansed. And once you believe, you are justified. But until then, your sin remains. As Jesus said back in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There is one way to have salvation, and that is to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. So until you do, your sin hangs on you. And the Spirit comes to convict people of sin so that they might believe in Jesus. But that leads us to the second part. He convicts not just of sin, but there is a conviction of righteousness. And righteousness is a word that is overly filled with meaning. People have a hard time kind of pinning it down. Certain people look at this and they say, well, what this is really talking about is a pretentiousness of righteousness. They're, it's an over-righteous. He's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, listen, you guys are trying too hard, or you think that you're more righteous than you are. I don't think that's quite what it's getting at, and certainly Jesus has a way of disarming people's pretension in righteousness, but I'm not sure that that's exactly what it's getting at. 
Some people think that it's more about convicting them about the necessary need of imputed righteousness, which again, I don't mind, and you're gonna see here in a minute that we can get around to that, but I, I just, that's a lot to read into one single passage. And it's very, very hard to understand why Jesus not being with us and going to the Father is the reason why the Spirit must do this. So I'm not with any of those. I think that the best option is actually that they're, convict, they're convicted of Jesus's righteousness. And the reason why I think this is this is the actual reason why they don't believe. They don't believe because they don't think that he's right. They don't think that he's good. They don't think that he's true. Why is it that people refuse and reject Jesus Christ even today? Even those who might be like Wendy, picking bits and pieces that they like and getting rid of the others. So that they're okay with the friendship thing, but the sexual ethics are a little bit much. Thank you. Well, they don't entrust themselves to him because they don't honestly believe that he's good. They don't believe that he's right when he says marriage and sex and marriage is the only way to have it and that is between a man and a woman. Well, that is a very restrictive view for our culture of marriage and we don't trust that Jesus is right when he upholds that. Certainly, that was the problem with believing amongst the Jewish leaders. Back in John chapter 9, when this blind man who has been restored in sight, who was born blind, comes before them, they make it very, very clear what their goal is. They tell him in 924, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. We know he's a sinner. We know he's not righteous. We know that he's not in the right, that he is not good, and that he doesn't come from God. And the fact that Jesus is no longer with us is, sign, is signified of the fact that he can't do the miracles that prove that he's from God anymore. That's why the Holy Spirit must convict of Jesus' righteousness. Because that blind man turns around and says the very thing that we would expect him to say. He's like, dude, I, I can see. We've never heard of a man being born blind and being healed. He says later on in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could not do anything. The works themselves show that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. But he's not here anymore. And so the Spirit convicts of Jesus' righteousness that he is good and righteous and everything that we need. And he has done everything that God has placed before him to do. However, that can't be the whole of it. Even in verses as packed together and as tightly concentrated as these are, you could still throw in a my and say, he will be convicted of my righteousness and have it much more understandable. Just a couple of letters in the Greek, just two in the English. The fact that we don't have that means that we need to look a little bit further here. And I think that we can. You see, we have this sort of wrong thought about how Jews appreciated themselves having righteousness and about how they would have been freed before God of their sin. We have this sort of idea that the Jews thought that they could go in and do the law perfectly and cleanly and, and bring upon themselves absolutely no sin. And frankly, that doesn't accord with the Old Testament, where we hear several times over in several different places that everyone has sin. As a matter of fact, that's the whole reason why there's a sacrificial system set up. But even outside of that, we get in something like 2 Chronicles 6.36, that there is no one who does not sin. Same Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
It is hard to believe that Jewish people wouldn't have gotten along with that. They knew that they sinned. How did they get forgiveness? Well, they got forgiveness, yes, by doing good things. But the keeping of the law for them was not to put their deeds of the law in a balance against their bad deeds and say, as long as we do more good than bad, we'll be okay. They did the law primarily, it seems, to demonstrate that they were God's people. So that they would fail, but they would say, yeah, but we're still God's people and we're going to go after the law with everything we've got. And they believed honestly and truly that they didn't earn their salvation. They believed honestly and truly that God would forgive them for no other reason than they are his people. I am their God. They are my people. And this is well attested even in the Old Testament. Why did God not smite the whole lot of them when they made the golden calf? Why didn't he reach down and destroy all of them? Well, Moses interceded, but how did Moses intercede? He said, God, these are your people. You have just brought them up out of Egypt. If you kill them all now, what are the Egyptians going to say? Ah, he brought them out just to destroy them in the wilderness. He could not give them. You have attached yourself to them, and because you've attached yourself to them, they have to be forgiven. They have to be forgiven. They are your people. You are their God. You have to be good to your promises. And so the Jewish people knew that they were forgiven by grace. They knew that they were forgiven in mercy because they knew their God through the law and God knew his people. We even get this quite often in something like Isaiah, of all places, Isaiah 64, 9. Isaiah says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. He bases the forgiveness of God on the fact that we are your people. Not on the fact that we deserve it, not on the fact that we have earned it. Isaiah, not too many chapters from here, is going to talk about all of our work being nothing but filthy rags before God. So, their standing before God, their righteousness before God, when they sinned and went before God and he said, why should I forgive you? Their only retort would be, because we are your people. That is our claim. That is what we stand before you justified by. We are your people and you should forgive us for no other reason than we are your people and we carry your name. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had great promises given to them. But this is a huge problem in the book of John. John, from the very beginning, sets it up to note that they don't know their God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1.11, he came to his own, to his people, and his own did not receive him. When God showed up in front of them, when God took on flesh and came before them, they looked at him and they said, you are a sinner. You're not God. As a matter of fact, the more you claim to be God, the more we think that you're a sinner. No matter how many good works you do, no matter how many good things you say, no matter how brilliant and wise your teaching might be, and no matter how many people end up following you, there is no way you can be God. You are nothing but a sinner, and we know it. What can they plead before God? What can they say to him? Before, they could say, well, you are our God and we are your people. When they show up having rejected Jesus, what are they going to say? Well, you are our God 
And he's going to say, well, apparently I'm not. I came to you. I clothed myself in humanity to come to you, to lead you, to give you repentance and faith, to give you justification in the name of Jesus Christ. I came to you and you rejected me. You condemned me as a common criminal and hung me on a cross. You are not my people. And that is not even his declaration. That's your declaration. This is where our Righteousness comes from. Because we are God's people. It is our union with Christ that allows us to be forgiven. It is our union with Christ that makes his death our death, that makes his life our life. And imputed language gets close to this, but it's not quite there. We are unified with Christ. It is his death and his life, but because we are his people, that becomes ours. This is at the heart of the promise of the new covenant. One of the greatest passages in the Old Testament for this is Jeremiah 31. In verses 33 and 34, we read this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more will they not know who I am. I will show up, and they will know. I will speak, and they will say, that is our God. I will exist, and they will say, we are his people. And notice what he says directly after that. They will know they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. They will know me because I will take their sins away and they will be my people. The Holy Spirit does this for us by showing us that what Jesus always does is right, by showing us and convicting us that Jesus' ways are always best, even when we don't think so, even when our flesh would tell us and lie to us and say there is a better path. The Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us in good paths because what Jesus wants for us is always what is best. And he demonstrates that we are indeed God's people because we are united with Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. All we have is Christ. And that brings us to the last. The conviction, not just of sin and of righteousness, but also of judgment. The ruler of this world, he says, is judged. We don't think much of gambling. Gambling is foolish because it, it's always a losing proposition. The house is always going to win in the end. Those casinos are huge and beautiful in their really gaudy little way. They're huge and beautiful because there's a lot of money going through there. And there's a lot of money going through there because people are suckers to give away their money on losing bets all the time. And if there were sports, you can bet on those as well. But that's still a losing proposition. You're going to lose at that. But what if, like Biff Tanner in Back to the Future 2, you were able to get an almanac from the future that listed every sports score, every major contest, every boxing match, every soccer match, every football, if we ever play any sports again, they'll all be listed there and you can bet on all of them. At that point in time, it's not really gambling anymore. It's more like just getting free money. And that is not gambling. 
When you know the result, it stops being gambling. This is what we get in the cross. You see, what we're trying to do is to tell people that the way that you live your life, it seems like you're going to get pleasure now. Your flesh is telling you you're going to have pleasure now. But that pleasure is fleeting, it's disastrous, and it will crush you one day. Even if you live in abject pleasure, even if you have all of the riches and everything that you could want, it will come crashing down one day, and there is nothing but destruction at the end of it. But the hard path, the one of self-denial, the one of taking up your cross daily, the one of pain and suffering by seeing your own sin and having to, to repent of that before others and before God, that is a way of life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe in. There are two paths in life. There is the path that leads by the way of the ruler of this world. Whether you're Muslim, whether you're Buddhist, they seem like they're all against one another. They seem like they don't get along, but they, don't, they have one thing in common and only one thing in common that they need to have, and that is they're not Christian. And as long as they are that, Satan is fine and happy to let people do what they want. You choose the way of the flesh, you can choose the way of the world, or you can choose the way of Christ. But here is the brilliant thing. When Jesus dies on the cross, and he is resurrected from the grave, that is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. That is a picture, friend, of what has already happened to you in the future. That is what has already happened. Your death has been paid. Your punishment has come and gone. Your conviction has already been overturned before you ever step foot in court. Your life has already gained by Jesus Christ. The future judgment, everything that has happened, has been written down for you. You've got a cheat. The ruler of this world is judged. Everything that he had in his arsenal, he launches at Jesus. Jesus takes it and has victory over it. And... By crushing death and by crushing sin, he shows that he will, in the future, be victorious over all of it. So there is one who will win and there is one who will lose. And the Holy Spirit convicts by pointing back to the very victory of Jesus Christ to show you that there is one good choice in all of this. And that is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Those who neither know God nor his power, who have rejected Christ, deny his righteousness, who do not bow before him, will be condemned, they will be judged, they will be crushed under the King of Kings. But those who are willing to give their lives away for the gospel, those who have truly been convicted by the spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment, they will know forever the forgiveness and the goodness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is quite clear in 12 through 15, this is not all. The Holy Spirit has more work to do than just this. It's not just to tell us of the gift of salvation, but to lead us and to walk us through it. The Holy Spirit will eventually finish off the rest of the New Testament, and we get to hear much from him about how we are to live and how we are to walk through this life. He will take the things of Jesus and give them to us. But this is enough, just as it was for the disciples. It is enough for us right now. Friends, realize that this is what has happened to us in our lives. You didn't come to believe in Jesus because you are brighter or wiser or more moral than your neighbors. You came because the Holy Spirit led you. How much more then should we pray for those who do not know him that God would help them? 
How can we withhold that from them? All the more reason we have because it has happened to us. It's not something that we're supposing can happen. We are walking examples of it happening. That the Spirit has worked in us to bring us to conviction, to bring us to faith. So we ask for Him to open their eyes. We ask Him to convict them of sin. We ask Him to show them that Jesus Christ is indeed the righteous one over all. We ask that they might believe in Christ and choose Him over the ways of the world. And we know that God's willing to do this because He was willing to do it for you and He was willing to do it for me. Friends, the fact that Jesus has given us the Spirit to do this is indeed for our good and it is to our advantage. It is so that the good news of Jesus will be preached, so that the glory of Jesus will be seen, so the name of Jesus will be praised, the forgiveness of Jesus will be felt, and indeed, the kingdom of Jesus will come in its fullness. So all the more as we await that day, even as we are trained to say, come Lord Jesus, and we know that he is not here while you are not here, do the work of the kingdom, build your church, bring people to faith, and let us praise the work of the Spirit in the lives of his people. Let us then pray. Father, what a blessing your Spirit is, and how often we are prone to overlook his wonderful work. So patiently does he point us to what Jesus has done and to what you have planned. But we know of his glory firsthand. All those who have come to believe in Jesus' name have done so by the leading of your Spirit. How blessed we are to have him, that we might know Jesus and the wonder of his love. May your spirit continue to abide with us, pressing us on in the faith, giving us courage, boldness, and love before the world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ for our good and for your glory. Amen.